please and turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is where I'd like to direct your attention. I'm going to read from the first 15 verses of this chapter. We'll do it in just a moment. Before I do, a couple notes about the service today. Uh, one, I'm glad that uh, uh, Ryan and Kelly sang that new song. Uh, we are anxious for you to learn good songs that you can sing. I often think about that when I'm uh, singing with you on Sunday morning. I think about how the songs can serve the congregation and be a source of encouragement to you. Uh, that song that they sang, I will post a video about it on um, Facebook sometime this week, maybe on Tuesday, just so you can listen to it. But if you're interested between now and then, uh, again, it's called Lord from Sorrow's Deep I Call, and it's by Matt Boswell. If you look up on YouTube, I'm sure you'll find a video. That's where I'm going to post probably this week. Lord from Sorrow's Deep I Call by Matt Boswell. Um, most of, uh, if not all of Matt Boswell's music is worth learning and singing. And um, so there's that recommendation for you. Secondly, Fred mentioned our outreach partners this week. I scheduled a couple of them to come visit us. So next March, uh, Steve and Donna Niles will be with us. And then in June, the Cramlex will be with us. And uh, it's always a pleasure for that. So something to look forward to uh, for 2020 already. Then finally, again, I would like to thank the congregation for uh, the many notes that I received last week. The cards, I have read two or three of them a day, uh, so I have a lot more to go. Uh, and I read them and I think, well, I wish this was as true as this person thinks it is. But very kind and very uh, encouraging, and I appreciate it very much. Now, God's Word. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden that God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. God does it so that people will fear Him. Whatever is has already been and what will be has been before and God will call the past to account. Well, thanks to the Beatles, this is the most well-known passage from the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, perhaps, whether people know its source or not, this is one of the most well-known passages in all the Bible. This is a really well-known passage of Scripture, but I could argue, I think, that many people, both inside and outside the church, don't really understand it. 
Not because they're stupid, but, but because they haven't grappled with what it says in context. And if you do, this passage is both a, some, a source of comfort and a source of discomfort. You have to read it well, and whether or not it helps you or not is based largely on whether or not you believe what it says. We started reading the book of Ecclesiastes a few weeks ago, and Ecclesiastes is sometimes an uncomfortable book. This book has a way of taking our lives, the lives that we have worked so hard to build, and the treasures that we cling so, to so ferociously, Ecclesiastes has a way of making those things look, look bad, not so satisfying. Um, Think about it with me for a minute. When was the last time you were in a dressing room trying to find some new clothes? Um, Maybe it's been a while for you, but you you might remember the experience. You walk into the store, you've got to find something, a dress for a a wedding or a new pair of pants for church, a new flannel shirt because it's almost fall, so you've got to go get one of those. Um, you walk into the store and, and you see something on the mannequin that looks really good, so you hunt it down or you find something you like and, and, and you go to the rack. Oh, what size? What size? So, uh, well, just take two or three to the dressing room. You'll find a size, I'm sure. And, and you walk into this uh, little bland dressing area and you lock the door and the first thing you see, of course, is that gigantic mirror, that huge mirror. And if it's a horrible place, it's a three-sided mirror that allows you to see everything from every angle. There you stand under those fluorescent lights glaring down on you. No one looks good in there. The first thing you do, of course, is you've got to take your shoes off. When was the last time that this floor was cleaned? You take your shoes off. And then in the process of trying on clothes, you see yourself in the mirror, a lot of yourself in this very big mirror under those unflattering lights. This is the first pair of pants you try on. It's too small, which is discouraging because you used to wear that size, but apparently not anymore. And even if it does fit, how come it doesn't look good on, as good on you as you imagined that it would look good I mean, it doesn't look good, as good on you as it did on the mannequin. What does she have that you don't besides that very boxy body with perfect measurements? I mean, other than that, what does she have that you don't? Here's the truth of the dressing room, right? There are some problems that clothes just can't fix. Flaws that clothes just can't cover. doesn't matter how nice the clothing, clothes can't fix ugly. And here you are in the dressing room in front of the mirror. Ecclesiastes has this way of stripping life down. It doesn't leave you any place to hide. It's all about showing you the flaws in the ways that you try to fix your life in this broken world. It's sometimes harsh. It's sometimes brutal. It's always honest. The teacher who wrote this book, he wants you to live a life that is wise and purposeful and satisfying, but in order to do that, he's got to strip off all of the ways that you try to cover the ways, the brokenness of life in this world. Now, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is one of the most directly theological passages in all of Ecclesiastes. God is mentioned here almost, uh, here almost more than anywhere else. And the focus is on a truth about God. That's the focus of this passage, namely God's sovereign control. But the teacher also speaks to in this passage why God's sovereign control sometimes frustrates us. All of us, even those of us 
who identify as followers of Jesus. We all struggle with this at times. It is endemic to humanity. We are all oriented away from God. That's the way we're born, to be oriented away from Him. And the Bible tells us hard truths that we need to hear, whether we like it or not. Here's how I want to proceed this morning. It it might be a little bit of an outside, inside-out way to look at this passage. Uh, First, what I want to do is I want to look at what this passage says about God. What's the truth that's at the center of this passage? And then second, embedded here in this passage, are a couple of reasons why we don't necessarily like this truth that it says about God, why it frustrates us, why it confuses us. And then third, I want to talk about the reorienting work that this passage does. So notice the work here. Here's something of the logic of of what we're going to do. Here's something that's true about God. Here's why we don't always like it or why it frustrates us. And here's how the Bible helps to reorient us, turn us to embrace this truth about God and love this truth about God. So that's how we want to proceed. Um, What does this passage tell us about God? Let's start. First of all, this passage tells us that God is the supreme sovereign of the universe. He's the supreme sovereign over the universe. He rules over all things, and what he proposes, he disposes without challenge or question. Clearly, the teacher formulates this in terms of time. Time. That's clear enough from the passage, right? But look again at verse 1. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity. Oh, one translation, a more contemporary translation, adds some adjectives. It says, there is an appropriate time for everything and, and there is an appointed season for every activity. Who determines the times and who determines that they're appropriate? Who appoints them? It's not you. It's not me. It's God. God himself appoints and appropriates. Look at what this passage says about God. So his supremacy is evident in verse 10. Look what verse 10 says. I have seen the burden that God has laid on the human race. We'll come back to that burden, but... Who has the authority to do this? God has the authority to do this, and this is what he has done. Verse 11 talks about his supremacy too. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has set eternity in the human heart. God did that. He's in charge. God determined certain things about how you view the world and how you think about the world. God made it that way. And he works, the text says, from beginning to end, from beginning to end, without interruption, without change, God at work from beginning to end. Our doctrinal statement says, God concerns himself mercifully in the affairs of humanity from beginning to end. God has been at work. Do you know what a deist is? So a deist is someone who believes that God got the universe started in eternity past, but then he backed off and let, he, let, him, uh, let creation work itself out on its own. Um, the deist God is often compared to a divine watchmaker or clockmaker. He made the watch, he wound the watch, and he let the watch tick away. And here we are in the ticking of the watch. A deism was very popular as a, as a worldview in the 1700s. It was influential on some of our founding fathers. It was waning as a worldview uh, by the time of the American founding. But Benjamin Franklin outright owned and claimed to be a deist. 
And deism is actually increasingly popular. People are functional deists. Yeah, God was at work at one point in time. He did work a lot with Moses and David and, of course, during Jesus, but not anymore. The text says, though, God works from beginning to end. Then verse 14 says that what God does will endure forever. There's nothing to add to it, nothing to take away. He is in his sovereign supremacy, unchallengeable, unchangeable, and irresistible. And what he does, verse 15 says, will never be forgotten. My translation says at the end of verse 15, God will call the past to account. Now, that's a tricky phrase to translate. Your translation might say something a little different. And we're not quite sure what it, what it means. There's two possibilities. Both of them emphasize God's sovereignty. It might mean that God causes what has happened before to to happen again. Like in chapter 1, where the the poem in chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, the sun rises, it hurries across the sky, it sets. The sun rises, it hurries across the the sky, and it sets. Over and over again, there's this repetitive nature to life on earth. And and maybe in in chapter 3 here, that's what he's talking about. God calls the past again. God calls the past again. It happens. There is repetitiveness to life, and God's in charge of it. That may be what it means. It also, though, could be emphasizing that God, um, God is so supreme that over time nothing is forgotten. Nothing misses his notice. There's no injustice that will not be avenged, no wrong that will not be dealt with because God is the master of time. He is the master of all things. He'll call the past to account. That, that might make sense because What's going to happen in the rest of chapter 3, which we'll come to uh, next week, Lord willing, is uh, uh, the focus on our accountability to God. So that, that may be what verse 15 is about. Regardless, God, God is sovereign. And there is one necessary response of human beings to his sovereignty, fearing him. Verse 14. God does it so that people will fear him. This is the fear of reverence. God does what he does so that people will fear him, will revere him. He who is the supreme ruler, he is the one who, according to Ephesians 1.11, works everything out according to the counsel of his own will. Ecclesiastes 3 is not a passage that you want to read uh, if you want to think about the subtle nuances of the relationship between your choices and God's sovereign will. The Bible does that at places. But the baseline that's in Ecclesiastes 3 and all the way through Scripture, the reason that actually we puzzle over this relationship between God's sovereignty and uh, human will is that God is the unchallenged sovereign. This is a message that's repeated in Scripture. I want to show you some more verses related to this. First, I want to show you a passage that's parallel to it. And then I want to read some passages in the New Testament that talk about a time, specifically time in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. I'm not sure if you looked at these verses in this way. I think you'll appreciate this uh, when we read these. First, let's look at a parallel to Ecclesiastes 3, uh, Paul's sermon in Acts 17. So look at Acts 17, verse 24, and hear how he describes God. God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. In other words, 
If the God you worship needs you to build him a house or if he needs you to feed him dinner and take care of him, you are not worshiping the real God because the real God takes care of us. He is not taken care of by us. That's actually what he says. The text, rather he himself gives life, gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. Now, I know Paul mentions time again in this passage. He talks about appointed times. But more than that, God's sovereignty over nations and borders and boundaries, that's the emphasis here. Why does God exercise this level of sovereign control? Well, it's because he is God. But in Ecclesiastes, it's so that we revere him. God appoints the time so that we revere him. Why does God set the borders and boundaries of history? It's so that we will seek him, search him out. If this were a theology class, I might pause at this point in time and talk about how God reveals himself to us. He reveals himself to us in his word. He reveals himself to us in his world. He reveals himself to us supremely through his son. And he reveals himself to us through history, Acts 17 says. But this is not a theology class, so I won't pause even for a minute to mention those four things. Now, let's look for uh, echoes of God's sovereignty focusing on time in the, the rest of Scripture, in the life of the Lord Jesus. So look at this. This is how Jesus began his ministry. Mark 1.14, he stood up and preached. He stood up preaching and he said, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Who has the alarm clock that tells the Lord Jesus that it's time to announce that the time has come? Uh, When the authorities in John 7 are going to arrest Jesus, this is one of the first times they want to arrest Jesus, look at John 7, 30, what it says. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why not? Because his hour had not yet come. It was not time. But later John 13, 1, it was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. John 13, 1. Then in Matthew 26, he gives these instructions to his disciples. He said, Go into the city to a certain man and tell them, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. Jesus was on a schedule. He didn't come too early and he didn't come too late. He came at just the right time. And despite what other people were trying to do in opposition to him, Jesus had a schedule and he would not be moved from his schedule because God is the sovereign over time. Now, look how Paul describes this Christ's coming in in Galatians. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. And then Romans 5, you see at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. There's a time. Jesus came at just the right time. He died for us at just the right time. And he'll come again at the right time. Look what Paul says in the last passage to read, 1 Timothy 6. 
I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, this is a beautiful, God, the blessed and our only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see to him the honor and might forever. Amen. Amen. Indeed. Time. God's the master of time. He's the sovereign ruler over it. It would be a sign that we understand what the teacher is saying in Ecclesiastes 3 for us to affirm together that uh, God's sovereign greatness, he reigns and rules supreme over all things. He orders all events and all seasons and all times. He's never in a hurry. He's never rushed. He accomplishes what he wills when he wills it to be done. He's never frustrated. He's never late. He never makes excuses that he's too busy to get something done. Do you know the hymn with many crowns? We sing it. It's one of my favorite songs. That's not why we sing it, but we sing it. It is one of my favorite songs, which is not saying much because I have about 50 favorite hymns. So uh, there's a lot of verses in that song. We don't sing all of the verses. Um, And sometimes we mix some of the verses up when we sing them. Here's a verse that, that we don't sing, how one of them starts. Crown him the Lord of years, the potentate of time. He's the ruler of time. Creator of the rolling spheres, ineffably sublime. Is the God you worship ineffably sublime? You're like, I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe. Uh, So ineffably means uh, inexpressible. Sublime means uh, so wonderful that inspires greatness. God is so magnificent, we don't even have the words to describe how great he is. He is ineffably sublime. Now, remember that verse started with, uh, he's the Lord of years, he's the potentate of time. Here's how that verse ends. We sing this in in relation to another verse, but listen. Um, All hail, Redeemer, hail, for thou hast died for me. Thy praise shall never, never fail throughout eternity. How can God determine that his praise will never fail throughout eternity? Because he's the potentate of time. He's the Lord of years. He's the supreme sovereign of the universe, particularly with the unfolding of history. Now, in order for this to be good news, you have to ask a very important question. Is this sovereign God also a good God? What if he's a tyrant? What if he's wicked? What if he's evil? This would not be good news. A God with this much power would be a monster. You still would have to bend the knee to him because he's sovereign, but you wouldn't like it at all. I listened to a podcast with uh, CBS News reporter John Dickerson. He uh, does history podcasts. He talks about the American presidency. And uh, in recent weeks, he's been talking about um, how the founding fathers came to create the office of the president. When they were writing the Constitution, how did we get the office of the presidency? And one of the things they were worried about was giving the president too much power because if the president has too much power, he would become a dictator. Uh, They were concerned about this. And John Dickerson wrote about the cookie monster test. Um, The Founding Fathers did not know about the Cookie Monster Test, but John Dickerson spoke about the Cookie Monster Test. You ever heard of the Cookie Monster Test? It's not the Marshmallow Test. Some of you have heard about the Marshmallow Test. But all my favorite social science studies have to do with food, if I could just say. But anyway, the Cookie Monster Test. So psychologists got together, a a bunch of people, they divided into groups of three, 
and they gave each group a writing assignment. You have to do a particular assignment. And they appointed, in some of the groups, they appointed someone and designated that person as the leader. You are the leader. And then what they would do is about halfway through when they were doing this writing assignment, they brought a plate of cookies to each group. And guess how many cookies were on the plate? Four. Three people in the group, four cookies. This is reason for World War II in most American households, right? What are we going to do? With an astounding number of, of uh, accuracy and consistency over time in places that they've done this study, if there wasn't a group, the person designated leader, he or she almost always took the extra cookie for him or herself. Without asking, they just took it. If you give some pow- somebody power, what do they do? They take your cookies. They use it to get their, to, to get their way at the cost of, of others. So who is this God that the teacher is writing about? This God with all this power. Is he a tyrant? Is he a monster? A lot of people believe that the God who is, is a tyrant. And, and, and they receive this reminder about his authority as, as, a, as a statement. It's not comfortable. It's not encouraging. It's not helpful. Which leads me to my second thing that we want to talk about, point number two here. I want to talk about why we're tempted to dislike or dismiss the truth about God's sovereignty. And there's two reasons. Number one, we want to be in control. We want to be in control. And I don't like to be reminded that I'm not in control. And yet that seems to be the the point of this poem, this beautiful poem that's in Ecclesiastes 3. It's a beautiful poem that's so perfectly balanced. Um, The structure is is easy to see. There are uh, 14 lines, um, which is uh, 2 times 7. 7 is the Bible's number of completion. And this poem is about the whole breadth and scope of life. You can see this. Each line has opposites, positives and negatives, and life consists of them both. There are seasons of birth and seasons of death, seasons of planting and uprooting, weeping and laughing. There seems to be some sort of pattern here. So the first line in verse 2 is just the most basic things that we human beings experience, birth and death. Um, Then uh, the next three lines, again, seem to be applying to these basic functions of life, planting and uprooting, killing, probably in the sense of eating, uh, provide food, tearing down and building. Verse 4 is about our emotional experiences. Private, in private you weep and you laugh. In public you mourn. Public weeping is called mourning. And, and celebrations in public are uh, dances, unless you're Baptist. Um, verses five and uh, 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 verse five has to do with uh, relationships. It seems that's easy to see in the second half. Uh, embrace and refrain from embracing. No one is really sure about scattering stones. What that means. The best guess I can figure is it has to do with uh, armies and conquering. So. Um, if you conquered a particular, uh, particular land and you wanted to ruin your enemies, you know what you would do? You would take as many stones as possible and throw them into their fields. Palestine is a notoriously rocky place. In fact, there's an old 
uh, Jewish legend that, that God gave a bucket of rocks to an angel and told him to go scatter them throughout the whole earth. And this angel was walking along and when he got to Palestine, he tripped and spilled most of them. And, and when you invade a land and you conquer it, if you want to ruin them, you scatter stones in their fields just to make growing crops harder. Verse 6 uh, is about uh, your possessions, things you search for, things you give up searching for, things you keep, things you throw away. Verse 7 is about grief again, tearing your clothes in, in, in mourning. Verse 8, these basic things, Love and hate, war and peace. The teacher's not commending these things. War, he's not saying, hey, this is a good time for a war. That's not what he's doing. He, he's just saying that, that this, this happens. There is comfort and discomfort in this poem. We most often think about the comfort. I want to think about the discomfort in a minute, but let's think about the comfort of this. There is appropriateness to the seasons. There's an order, there's a pattern. Dare I say, there's a plan to all of them. I mention that because this is a very popular passage of Scripture. It's, pas- it's popular with all kinds of people. It's popular with believers and unbelievers, Christians and Jews and Buddhists and Baptists and Presbyterians and atheists and agnostics and Beatles. This, popul- this passage is popular. The rhythm and the scope of it are, are comforting. There are times and there are seasons for everything. There's patterns. That's helpful. If you're in a time of uprooting or you're in a time of tearing down or if you're in a time of weeping, there's seasons, there's patterns. It won't last forever. Be comforted by that. But you know, the comfort of this passage is only truly helpful if you are willing to acknowledge or able to acknowledge that there's an ordered mind that is setting the seasons and fixing the times. So here's my challenge. If you find this poem to be comforting, I'm glad you do, but I wonder if your worldview is sufficiently grounded to provide you with that comfort legitimately. That is, if you believe, if, if at the base you believe that the world is nothing but randomness, that there's no purposefulness to it, that we are merely the products of random chance, then how can it be comfortable to you about times and seasons that are being ordered by a mind and a will of some sort, some sort of designer? How can that be of any comfort to you? Maybe you're borrowing my comfort while denying my comforter. I'm not sure you can do that. Oh, it's just the universe. The universe appoints the times and the seasons. It's fate that appoints the times and the seasons. The universe doesn't care about you. Fate doesn't care about you. There's no order. If, if all there is is the universe, there is no order to that. There is no appropriate time. There is no appropriate season. Everything that you're experiencing is just random uh, choice, uh, random chance is nothing but, but chaos. This poem can provide comfort for you, but I wonder if you have the worldview to support it. If you know the God who is behind this order, who sets the appropriate times and seasons. Now, can I talk for a minute about the discomfort in this passage, why this passage is discomfort? The, the discomfort of this poem comes from the fact that there are these times and seasons, and the problem is, I don't get to set them. Someone else sets them. 
I don't like that. You can see the teacher's discomfort with that because he says in verse 9, what do workers gain from their toil? It's the same question he asked in chapter 1, verse 3. Um, in other words, um, there are no guarantees. You can work really hard. If you work really hard, there should be gain. That's what we think. If you work really hard, then you should experience all the good things on this list. Work hard and you'll plant and, uh, and reap. And then there'll be healing and there'll be building and there'll be laughing and dancing. If you work really hard, that's, that Proverbs says that most of the time. Proverbs comes along and says, yes, work really hard. If you, if you, if you uh, sow, you'll reap. That's Proverbs teaches. And then Ecclesiastes comes along and says, not always, not, not always. And if not always, you better find something else to hope in than your hard work. There are seasons of prosperity and poverty. There are seasons of mourning and laughing, tearing and mending, seasons outside of your control. I don't like that. Um, just uh, yesterday, I was listening to an interview on NPR. It was a television. It was a radio show called uh, "How I Built That," and uh, the interviewer, the NPR news person, was interviewing the woman who founded Teach for America. Her name was Wendy, and I made a special note yesterday to remember her last name. And you know what? I don't. But her first name was Wendy. She's a wonderful person. She founded this ministry called, not ministry, this organization called Teach for America. Teach for America takes um, college graduates and places them as teachers in poorly resourced areas. Uh, this group has been around for a long time. And uh, when they first started, they had a budget of $2.5 million. Now they have a budget of $300 million. The organization has grown and, and it's been very helpful. And the interviewer said to her, uh, he said, Wendy, you're a driven person. You're a successful person. You're a very organized person. You could have easily gone into the business world and made $300 million. You could have done that, and then you could have given the money away, that $300 million, and named a bunch of stuff about you, uh, but you didn't. That's not the path you took. Why not? Why didn't you go down that path? Now, what's interesting about that assumption, uh, the, the assumption of the question is, that's the way it would work. Because that's the way things work for people like Wendy who are hardworking and, and intelligent and, and driven. Is Of course you can go out and make $300 million. Of course you can. Why, why would you question that? And, and the, the teacher comes along and says, you know, there's seasons. There's times. There's no guarantees. This poem should make you think about your plans. Nobody plans for a life like this, right? If, if you ask me about my goals... Are you, some of the, are you a person who writes down short-term and long-term goals? If you're speculating about your future, there's probably a lot of hopes and dreams for births and for planting and for healing and for building. I bet you did not put in your life plan mourning and dying and uprooting. I bet that's not part of your plan. No one thinks to themselves, okay, let's see, um, I, how can I schedule out my week? Let's see, I'll think I'll put 50% laughter and 50% weeping. That'll be a good week. It's not how I plan my life. It's not what I'm hoping for. When you're in high school dreaming about your career, you don't plan for the cancer diagnosis when you're 58 uh, from which you never really recover. You know, the chemotherapy, it worked to kill the cancer, but you still have this tingling in your hands. It's never going to go away. You don't put that on your life plan. 
Uh, You don't plan for the car accident that's going to be so bad that it's going to cost you your business. It's not part of your plan. Even if there is an appointed time and a season for it, it was not part of your plan. You don't write down how your life is going to be devastated by the suicide of your grandson. You don't write that down. It's not the plan you make. When you exchange vows with your spouse, you you weren't thinking about the next 50 years and saying to yourself, you know, from years 16 to 19 and 34 to 37, we're going to have such a hard time communicating with each other. I'm not sure we're going to make it. It's not part of the plan that you made. When you bought that new couch a couple of years ago, I bet you were not thinking about the day that you would have to downsize and get rid of that new couch. You like that couch. It's just a couch. I know it's just a couch, but you picked it out. You like that couch. Someday, out of your house, it's going. You're not going to have it anymore. There's a time to keep and a time to throw away. Don't like that. No one sets down these plans, but they happen. Why do they happen? Because God is the supreme sovereign of the universe. He determines the times and the seasons. They're appointed by Him. You are not as independent and self-sufficient as you think you are. Uh, Damian Lillard is a point guard for the Portland Trailblazers. He's a good basketball player. And last season, he won a game in uh, New Orleans. He and his team won a game in New Orleans. And the coach let him fly home to, uh, so he could attend the cesarean section birth of his son. That's great. On the flight home, he received news that his half-brother had been shot five times in an altercation outside a mall in Portland. And police think that this young man was targeted because of his famous and wealthy older brother. Ups and downs, ups and downs, ups and downs. There's comfort here in knowing that there are seasons and times that are at least part of someone's plan. They fit, but I don't like that they're not my plans. I want to be in control. Now, there's a second reason why you might struggle to treasure this truth of God's sovereignty. The first one is we want to be in control. The second one is that we want to understand. We want to understand. Verse 11, God has set eternity in the human heart, yet... No one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. God has made us conscious of eternity. We think about what came before us and what will come after us, and we want to understand it. We want to put the pieces together. This is a unique characteristic of human beings. My dog, Stella, wonderful Stella, doesn't care about what happened yesterday, and she's not thinking today about what's going to happen tomorrow. This is a unique characteristic of human beings. God has made you think about it. And there's this limitation. No one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. We want to understand it. We want to, but we don't. If God suddenly gave you the power to set your own times and your own seasons, if he suddenly made you the sovereign of the universe, you would not be up for the job. It would not take you too long before you made a terrible mess of everything. This is God ruling the universe. So what do we do about this? The teacher wants to orient you to reality. And here's what he says. The God who reigns supreme, who has both control and understanding that often that, that you wish you had. Um, do you know what he's like? Do you know what he's like and what he does? Verse 11, he makes everything beautiful in its time. 
That is, everything in time proves to fit, to match. This is the God who is. He makes everything beautiful in its time. A few years ago, I participated in a wedding. I love to participate in weddings. Great joy. And one of the things that I do during premarital counseling when we're planning the ceremony is it's my responsibility uh, to defend the traditions of the world. So um, brides and grooms come and they sit down and they have no idea why brides and grooms for the last uh, couple hundred years have done what they do, uh, do what they do, have done what they did, have done what they done did it. Um, and and uh, I, so I sit and I explain, you know, here's why we do this, and here's why we do this. And, and I was sitting down with this bride and groom one day and I was explaining all this. And, but the bride had other plans for her wedding and other things that she wanted to do. She didn't really care about the traditions she had plans. And I was very skeptical. Um, I, don't, I don't think I said it out loud. Maybe I did. I should repent if I did. But I, I, I kept thinking to myself, that is not the way it's supposed to be. But on the appointed day of the wedding, all of her plans came together and it was both beautiful and complete. I was really wrong. And if this bride ever returns with some other new idea for something else she wants to do, I will say to her, your plans worked before, give it a try. I'm not going to be a skeptic again. The teacher wants you to have this sort of attitude when it comes to all these things, birth and death and planting and uprooting and killing and healing and everything. And here's the question. Do you believe that God works like this? Do you believe that God works like this to make everything fit appropriate in its time? Do you believe that? I want to finish by giving you two reasons why you should. Two reasons why you should. Um, One of them is cosmic and huge. One of them is very small and daily. Let's start with the small and daily one because that's the concern of Ecclesiastes. You've heard this before. Why should we have confidence in God's supreme sovereignty? Because God gives quiet, gentle, daily moments of joy. God gives quiet, daily, gentle moments of joy. That's the point of verses 12 and 13. I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift from God. Thursday morning, I asked Luke to go outside and get the garbage cans that were in our front yard and put them in the garage where they belong. And he went out and did it and came back in, and he said, it's freezing out there. And uh, it was was a beautiful, crisp September morning. Wasn't it wonderful? Wonderful. All three of my children left the house for school wearing sweatshirts. I haven't seen sweatshirts in a while. Different colors, different textures. I love living in Pennsylvania because just about the time I am tired of wearing all of my short sleeve shirts, it's time to put on long sleeve shirts. And by the time I'm tired of wearing all my long sleeve shirts, it's time to get out the short sleeve shirts again. It's wonderful. Did you receive the cooler air and the blue sky as a gift from God this week? Just stop and pause. The teacher wants you to. He wants you to recognize the daily small gifts from God. God gives these gifts. He gives cool air. He gives fall days. Uh, The teacher mentions food. This is the season, of course, for pumpkin spice everything. Some of you have been waiting since July 1st for your pumpkin spice latte. It's disgusting, but you love it. You love it. 
I was in the store and they had this whole rack, pumpkin spice Cheerios, pumpkin spice cornflakes, pumpkin spice bread, pumpkin spice. It was terrible. I've got a marketing idea for Lifeway, the pumpkin spice study Bible. I'm going to make a fortune. (laughs) Going to make a fortune. It's a gift from God. Small daily blessings. Sign of his sovereign goodness. He makes little moments of beauty all day long in very small ways. One wonders if you have eyes to see them. So small things. And then there's God's massive cosmic gift. You probably know where we'll end this morning. In the fullness of time, just at the right time, God provided the gift of his son. How do we know God unfolds history beautifully? Because according to his plan, he has given us his son who came and lived and died and suffered tremendous injustice when he did. He was executed by wicked men. He was innocent of all wrongdoing. He went to the cross because of our wrongdoing. He died and rose again, ascended into heaven, and from there he gives life and forgiveness to all who receive them in his name. From that place, he's going to return at just the right time and establish his kingdom. There is nothing on this list in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 that summarizes human existence that is as good and as beautiful and as horrible and as painful as the death of the Lord Jesus. Everything you experience in life is either less wonderful or less horrible than what God himself has done for us. And when he comes, he's going to unfold this. He, he, will, he will show us, he will teach us his sovereign purpose in everything. And we'll say by sight, oh, yes, 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 I see. Beautiful, beautiful in its time, beautiful in its time. N.T. Wright once wrote about a story that he read in the newspaper. There's <coughs> there a man cleaning his attic in Austria, and he found this uh, old piece of music, handwritten piece of music. So he took it to a friend of his who was a collector and uh, showed it to him. What is this? What is it? And the, the collector looked at it and he studied it very carefully for half an hour and he started to get a little excited and then he got puzzled because the handwriting looked an awful lot like Mozart's handwriting, but the music was, it didn't look, it, it didn't sound like anything that we know that Mozart had written. So he called a friend, and they called another friend. The, the, the manuscript was passed around and consulted, and they were talking about it. And, and people were excited that, that even though it, it, it was not familiar as a piece of Mozart's writing, it, this, looks like, this looks like an original Mozart manuscript. Unknown, unheard of, now discovered. That's amazing. Then they discovered something else. The music was strange, there were gaps in it, um, long rests, and places where it just didn't see. Uh, then they figured out, you know what? This is the piano part of a duet that Mozart wrote. There's another piece of music that's supposed to go with this. This is the piano part, and there's, there's more music for the violin or, or, or a couple other instruments. All we have is the piano part, and, and you know, it's by Mozart, so it was still pretty good. But there were, there were gaps, there were gaps in it. Beautiful, but frustratingly incomplete. There's got to be something else out there. There is beauty now, the teacher says. There is more to come. Can you hold on until then? That's the question the teacher wants to know. 
Can you hold on until then? Let's pray, shall we? Father, uh, Fred prayed, and he's right to pray this way. He prayed, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And, and John taught us to pray that way. Uh, but we know Jesus will come at just the right time. We hope that time is very, very soon. Because, Father, we have, we have questions we want to know why you designed certain seasons for us as you did. Hard things. Why, why there's this period of mourning and, and weeping? Why our lives seem to be more filled with uprooting and tearing down than building and planting? We have questions to ask you. In the meantime, I do pray that you would help us all to recognize that you make things beautiful in time. Would you give us confidence to believe that? Lord, I know that there are people in this room, there are people in the fellowship hall who are particularly discouraged because of the season that they're in. Uh, help them by your grace to hold on, hold on to this, to you, the supremely sovereign God who makes things beautiful and remind us that more important, infinitely more important than our ability to hold on to you is your ability to hold on to us. Hold us fast until the Lord Jesus comes at the perfect moment. Help us, help us. We pray together in the name of the Lord Jesus saying, Amen. I invite you all to stand as we sing once more this morning.